I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. Make every decision or be involved in every detail. I've got to take all my actions through my team. So a huge part of my job is helping my team, helping them manage, helping them be focused on the most important things helping them find their superpower and then go, you know, orient all of their time around that. And the the debate is a great one. I want them to be having healthy debates amongst themselves and to be able to come to conclusions respectfully, but to be able to drive each other to come to the right answers. We, we work a lot on that in our weekly business review process. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. So our guest today is Fast Growing Trees COO, Matthew Graham. I just had an amazing conversation with him. Matthew's helping to scale the business in a super niche e-commerce category, selling full-size trees online. And this is not a startup. He joined the company as COO when they already had roughly 300 full-time employees. He leads the fulfillment center, nursery operations, supply chain, merchandising, and customer service. He's also the former VP of supply chain of Chewy, where he helps scale forecasting, inventory management, delivery experience, sales and operations, planning through an IPO and five times growth, while also building out their data science function. Before Chewy, Matthew spent 13 years at Home Depot in roles of increasing responsibility from engineer to senior director in data science, inventory management, business intelligence, and supply chain optimization. He is wicked smart, fun to chat with. He's also a major global traveler. You'll love this episode. You'll also love to watch it on our Second Command podcast and YouTube channel as well. We'll see you on the inside. Enjoy the content. Make sure you share this one. So Matthew, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thanks, Cameron. Really glad to be here. Yeah, really glad to um, sit and chat with you. And, and if anybody is is listening, I urge you to go over to our uh, YouTube channel for the Second Command podcast. You'll see that behind Matthew, he's got a map of the world. That will probably be my next tattoo as well. My wife and I are full global nomads. We've been traveling for 23 months full time, sold everything two years ago and just said, fuck it, we want to go see the world. And you and I were literally in Iceland together at the exact same, not together, we were there at the exact same time. Which, besides Iceland, what are what are a couple of your favorite global destinations? Ah, that, that's a great question. Really big fan of Japan, done a couple of trips there. You know, fantastic things to see. It's very, very interesting culture. Hit almost all U.S. states, so I'm trying to finish off the entirety of the United States. And I'd love to visit Southeast Asia. I really want to do a, a trip to Africa, do a safari. Uh, so I've got a lot on my list. Iceland was fantastic, though, as we talked about. Really great. Um, just spectacular around every corner. You see it, you know, a, a kind of crazy amount of things. 
And, it's, and you said that you guys um, did a, a five-day hike while you were there as well, which is pretty hardcore because you're always out in nature there. That must have been an incredible experience through the hiking. Do you, do you weave a lot of the hiking into a lot of your trips globally? Yes. So I've got a, a group of friends, a group of four friends that we've done a hike every year. This was our 20th annual hike, actually. So we wanted to do a big one, which is why we went to Iceland for it. But we, we you know, every year go on a big hike. Uh, and try and see a place and, and get really out far into nature as far as we can get from people, although that's a little bit tough sometimes. That was one of our, our big trips two years ago. We went down to Antarctica and then we spent about six weeks in Chile and Patagonia and did a bunch of hiking there. And um, we did that right as COVID was kind of still happening, but almost lifting. And it's an incredible. Have you been down to, to that area, Patagonia? I, I did Inca Trail last year. Okay. Uh, fantastic. Group. Uh, Antarctica is two down on my list. Uh, yeah. here, maybe make ski. that happen. Do you have a bucket list in writing, by the way? I do. Yes. Yeah, the places to go and things to do. Okay. I'd love you to share your bucket list with me. We'll link it in the um, show notes. If you're okay with that, I will also link my wife's and my bucket list in the show notes as well. Cause we love inspiring people just to get off their ass and go see some cool stuff. And I'd love to see what's on yours. And Japan, we're heading to Japan in February for about a month. We're going to go skiing in Niseko. We've got a group of friends coming over to ski for the week, and then we're going to stay in Japan for a month. I just finished packing all my ski year yesterday, which is weird to be packing up your ski year in August, but my son's going to ship everything over to us. Um, so I had to have it all ready before I leave Vancouver. Oh, that that's fantastic. I assume you're going to Hokkaido, see the snow festival there. Yeah, exactly. Snow festivals there. And we're staying late, late enough that we'll get to see the cherry blossoms. My wife is the, she calls it the captain of our bucket list life. And I think I'm the chief financial officer. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. So listen, tell me, tell me a little bit about the business that you're running today, fast growing trees, kind of where it came from. And I, I joked earlier that I said, I'm going to read your, your bio and, and weave it around what we covered today. I said, it'll be read more like a Tinder profile. And you said, you know, your CEO, you used to be the CEO of Tinder. So I want to chat a little bit about what it's like to work with someone like that too. For sure. So uh, Fast Growing Trees, we're the largest online nursery. I have over 2 million trees and plants that we ship across the country, providing quality service, customer experience, expertise. Uh, since 2005. So actually been around for quite a while for a, an e-commerce company. Largest in our class, still still tiny compared to the total market. So there's a huge amount of growth to be done there. And that that's really what I'm most excited about is in addition to the, you know, touching on outdoors and being sort of a tree hugger on the weekends. It's great to be in, in something that is never quite been done before that nobody's ever done at the scale. Shipping live goods is, is hard. It's tricky. And that's what excites me about the problem. Yeah, using reefers to ship everything. So you, you guys are shipping, like, who are you? Are you selling to nurseries? Are you selling to homeowners? Are you selling to big box stores? What do you, who do you sell to? We sell directly to customers. So you come on our website or you give us a call and we sell directly to consumers. So we're shipping largely FedEx to your doorstep. You know, you order one tree, 10 trees, 100 trees, um, you know, even full size trees, and we ship them directly to you, arrive at your doorstep in a couple of days. And what are you shipping? Like jack pine, black spruce? Like what do you like tiny little bare root or little potties? Or what are you shipping them in? Almost all full size. We sh unlike a, a lot of online, we don't ship any bare root. We take in bare root, pot it, get it to be really healthy, and then ship it in full size. So we're shipping primarily full size trees. Our number one is the Thuja Green Giant. It's, it's this privacy tree. P people buy dozens at a time. Uh, and we now have a jumbo size. So we ship seven foot tall trees, full size trees. Uh, Nobody else 
sells that online. Uh, whole size trees. Number two is fruit tree, Meyer lemons. People love Meyer lemons, avocado trees, especially. We do sell smaller ones, but primarily we sell large ones so that you get instant privacy, instant fruit, uh, instant avocados. This is amazing. Like, I, I want to get into kind of the Genesis story here, but I, I got to tell a bit of a funny story that years ago, I, I was throwing a bunch of paper out and somebody got to me about recycling. And I can't believe you're wasting paper and recycling. And I turned to them, I'm like, first off, fuck you. Secondly, I planted 79,806 trees in seven weeks when I was 20 years old. I will waste as much paper as I want until you go out and plant at least a hundred, but don't give me shit about wasting when I, my hands were like, I, so I planted trees up in Northern Ontario, Canada, black spruce, white spruce, jack pine, bare root, potapuki, like the whole deal. But when you plant 79,806 trees, I think, I think you have the right to say that you're a tree hugger, but you also at times hate trees. <laughs> that That's a lot of trees. You I can tell you're a COO because you you have the exact number that you counted precisely. I also kept I also kept my little booklet where I recorded it every day, and I was getting paid. Get this, six and a half cents a tree. Oh, wow! On, on my first day of planting, I only planted three hundred trees, which netted me about eighteen dollars and thirty cents. And the camp costs were nineteen eighty, so I actually lost a dollar on my first ten hours of work. I'm like, this is a horrible job. <laughs> Um, but then you figure it out and get in the rhythm. So I love what you're doing. I think it's a, an incredible mission, incredible model. Only in, Are you selling only to the U.S. or are you selling to Canada as well? Only to the U.S. right now. We do source from Canada, and I'm sure far down our roadmap would be shipping to there, but uh, only the continental U.S. right now. You know, e-commerce shipping distance is a big, big factor. When did the company start? What was the genesis? How did, how did this thing start? 2005. A couple of brothers, the Z-Box. You know, I think had a backyard and they said, hey, everybody's doing this online thing. Let's start shipping trees online and, you know, started up and the business got cranking, started to get some private equity investment. Then the pandemic hit and it really took off because people started to come online. You know, there's there's this sort of saying that pets are the new kids and plants are the new pets, that it's this great living thing that you care for that, you know, especially when people are trapped inside, it's beautiful. You can grow it. You can nurture it. Now, there's also a, a lot of it's fashion for your house. You buy a house and you want to dress up how it looks outside. You come get a couple of really nice looking trees and it, you know, really makes it pop. Uh, the so logistics of this business have got to be insane. I mean, you're not, I have a, I have a friend in Vancouver, Canada, who um, started a company years ago. And he, he said he wanted to start a company that he could grow to a thousand X what his revenue would have been in the first year. And he only ever wanted to work from the same size office and warehouse space. So he said all he could really figure out to sell was cocaine or diamonds. And he said, cocaine was illegal, but diamonds, he said, I can have millions of dollars in this safe and I can still sell it. I'm like, that's brilliant. But you guys want the opposite direction. You're we like, went the opposite direction. we need lots of space. We, we have dozens and dozens of acres filled with trees, millions of trees that we have to care for that then ship, you know, and, and at this scale, you know, we're shipping thousands a day. So you've got to have a, you know, really efficient operation to manage that pack, that ship, that get that out. And then, like you said, it, you know, it's quite complicated, especially with the outbound shipping, making sure it's really well packaged, you know, understanding the zones it's going to go through to, to make sure it arrives in really good, healthy condition. Quite complicated. Uh, you know, again, that's, that's why I was so interested in the business was to come take on this really big challenge. Well, on the inventory side of things, too, I mean, you're actually growing your inventory. Most people are like, you know, buy, you're actually having to grow it and nurture it along. And, and like there's so there's a timing component to all this as well, right? There definitely is. That, that's one of the things people are, are paying for, right? You buy a one to two foot tree, 
You might pay $10, $15 for that, but it's going to take several years to get to size. You buy a seven foot tree, you know, you instantly get privacy about that, but there's a premium for that growth. It's been five years. Yeah. And so we've got to constantly manage that upstream supply chain. We've got multiple years of future uh, inventory locked in because we've got to have not just the one to two foot trees coming in. We've got to have very tall trees coming in. And often we have to buy them small and grow them ourselves until keep them healthy the whole time, keep them watered, keep them disease free. So they're in really good shape to ship out. I remember showing my kids the, the first time they ever saw a Christmas tree growing lots or whatever it was. And, and they, I'm like, well, where do you think Christmas trees come from? They don't just end up in a lot. Like somebody's got to grow these things. And they're like, wow, this is so cool. So what, well, yeah, what was it that attracted you to the company? And, and why do you think they wanted you to come in to, um, to be COO? Uh, so I was really interested in one, just the challenge that it was a you know very complicated problem that nobody had solved before. And I, I like trying to take on things nobody has solved before. And if you look back to the big box retailers in the 70s and 80s, as they built out, you know, big box of stuff, whether it's home goods, pet supplies, you know, they they built out these massive inbound networks to manage it. And then when e-commerce came along, they could leverage those inbound networks and just had to focus on the outbound side. Well, the big boxes all decided live goods were too hard. They don't manage them themselves. They're all externally managed. So nobody built out these inbound networks. So we're having to balance both of those, uh, figure out sourcing, figure out how to get enough at scale, as well as figure out how to get it into customers' hands, you know, efficiently and in good shape. So just the scale of the challenge was really interesting. I'd spent a number of years, five years prior to this at Chewy, which is the you know largest online pet supplier. And so there was a lot of the, the e-commerce challenges. And a lot of people came to me about, hey, we want to be the next Chewy of X. Uh, and it wasn't until Trees came that I said, this is a really interesting challenge. No offense to people who ship sneakers, but it just wasn't wasn't as exciting as trying to figure this out, as well as a connection to the category of, you know, outdoors and being, you know, environmentally conscious and interested. I, I was much more interested in this kind of business. Funny you mentioned sneakers. We have our uh, our speaker for our COO Alliance event next week. We have a global community of second commands and our speaker next week was the, the former head of culture for Zappos. Um, so he's coming in the big, you know, online shoe retailer. And I've always had a big fascination with them. I knew their COO and, and their CEO years ago before he passed away. But yeah, the, the, there's so many different components. Why did they like you? What was it that they saw in you coming in? Because you weren't coming into a startup. You were coming into a mature company that already had a team. So can you talk a little bit of what they saw in you or what you believe they saw? Yeah, I think I think it was a couple of things. You know, I'm a, I'm a little bit of an outsider uh, in the operations industry. I started out wanting to design spaceships. I have a couple of degrees in aerospace engineering, worked in that industry for a short amount of time, but you know, quickly realized I, I like to get stuff done. So I take a very analytical, numerical approach to problems that it particularly suits itself to supply chain and complicated networks of figuring out the system of systems and how the networks are all going to fit together and how you're going to join this complicated set of suppliers all the way through to the customer. Uh, so I think I bring that aspect. You know, I worked, I worked for many years, 13 years at Home Depot, which has a lot of overlaps. Um, grew up there as they grew their supply chain out, um, got to get a lot into the details of supply chain analytics and how supply chains really work and how you, you know, align demand and supply. Uh, and then again, spent, spent almost five years at Chewy, which became a really crazy growth story. Um, five times growth while I was there, uh, across several billion dollars. People went online, people adopted a lot of pets, managing the in stock, managing the supply chain there. And certainly had experience with that kind of hyper growth mode of an existing business, but not quite a mature business. 
It makes sense. And now it makes sense as to why you're in Atlanta. I think you said you're based in Atlanta, right? That's right. Yeah, it makes sense. So Home Depot. Year, years ago, when I was the second in command for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we were calling on the leadership team of Home Depot to get a strategic partnership in place where they would refer us as their kind of in-house partner program. And we actually figured out where their seven or eight people on their executive team lived. And then we mapped the drive that they would probably take from their home to the office. And we stood on the sides of the street on the streets that they would probably be coming onto. And we waved at traffic every morning for three weeks. And then we started cold calling the team. They're like, we see you guys everywhere. We're like, what? Amazing. <laughs> we were just a guerrilla company standing on the street in Atlanta waving at cars. We got business for the business, but we also did, the leadership team saw us. It was just this weird guerrilla tactic, right? <laughs> that, is a, that is a very outside strategy for sure. Yeah. That, we were a small company back then. That was prior to, to getting to like the 100 million mark. Can you give us a, a scope, the kind of rough size of the organization? I know that you're still privately held. And you don't give away all the numbers, but can you give us some size, some perspective? Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a, a couple hundred full-time team members, and then we scale up by another about 300 seasonally. So we've got over 500 team members in season shipping, um, you know, ship several million trees a year, manage several million trees in our nurseries and our fulfillment centers. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, you know, that's what, that's what I'm looking for. So your, your real business, real moving parts, you've probably got politics have started to creep in at that size as well. Kind of the matrix decision-making. Can you walk us through some of the idiosyncrasies of running a, a three to 500 person company? And sure, sure. Uh, you know, it's a little bit funny coming from Home Depot, hundred billion dollars plus Chewy with $10 billion. This feels like a small company to me. What, what a cute little business, right? Cute little, little business. Uh, so I feel like there hasn't been a lot of politics yet. We haven't divided out enough to have departments. We can still talk to you know That's fair. everybody in the leadership team every day. That's uh, super fair. Yeah. So so in my mind, it, it still hasn't quite happened yet. And I'm hoping that we can forestall that for, for quite a long period of time. That is, that is an interesting insight. How have you had to change as a leader going from those big companies to, as you put it, like when I was replaced as the CEO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, they brought the former president of Starbucks in and she said, what a cute little company we were. You know, I was like, fuck, it's big. How have you had to adapt as a leader to go from those big companies into this more entrepreneurial mid-sized company then? For sure. For sure. It's a big change when, you know, when you're at Home Depot, it's a huge company. Politics are a huge part of it. It's very important to know who's in the room and what they're interested in. So you can, in many ways, pitch to them. You know, I'm doing this you know, crazy supply chain backend thing, but in a company that's very much run by stores and merchants, you're going to understand what they care about, how you're going to help them drive sales, how you're going to help them help customers. As you get into smaller and smaller companies, I think you have more of a capability to look directly at the problems. You don't have to think so much about what are the personalities involved. You can think first principles, how am I going to solve this problem? What are the right answers and how are we going to go get it? On the flip side, you have very few resources, very few. EFO and I are out there coding in Python, building reports, because there's just nobody else to do it at some scale. So you have to think very carefully about prioritization. Yes, I want to do the 100 things, but I can only really get one big thing done and maybe a handful of small things, constantly reprioritizing, constantly focusing on what matters and going after getting that done. Uh, you know, In a large organization, you can split off lots and lots of sub-teams to go attack many problems at the same time. In a small one, you're just only going to be able to handle a few. I love that. That's super interesting, actually. Can you talk about the relationship that you have with the CEO and kind of how you really work? Like, I often liken the CEO-CO relationship to like mom and dad at a family reunion. Like there's lots of other adults, but the 
the mom and dad have to be the tight unit. Um, so there's other members of the leadership team, but it feels like the CEO, COO have to be that yin and yang. Can you walk us through how you build that relationship, trust, communication, you know, how you guys work well together as a team? Yeah, definitely. Uh, my CEO is Ellie Seidman. He was the CEO of, of Tinder, sort of mentioned earlier, and, you know, there's no end of swipe right jokes you can make. But he's very intellectual, very deep thinking, you know, and I, and I think what I help bring that relationship is the ability to take that down to the very detailed level. He's thinking very high level thoughts, very high level strategy, you know, thinking about the nature of people and how you motivate them. And I'm like, that's great. But now I have to go, you know, talk to 100 hourly team members on the floor who are pruning trees. How do I translate them into something that's meaningful and impactful for them? How do I, you know, think about how I'm taking steps out of the warehouse? How do I translate what he's saying into very detailed, actionable steps? So I think a, a big part of it is is level of detail. Um, you know, a big part of it is just the ability to get stuff done. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of ideas. I got to take that and say, all right, tomorrow, what are we going to do? And the next day, what are we going to do to go and execute against that? There's an operating model that a lot of small companies use called EOS. It's the entrepreneurial operating system. It's very small business. It's nothing that you guys would be using. You're well past that. But one of the things they talk about in the EOS model that I say always breaks down when you get past kind of 50 to 100 employees is they say the COO has to be the tiebreaker. I'm like, when you're running a real leadership team with real leaders, you're not you're not acting as the tiebreaker almost at all, are you? You're more kind of facilitator or getting them to all healthy debate. Can you talk about that? Completely agree. 100% agree. You know, I can't make every decision or be involved in every detail. I've got to take all my actions through my team. So a huge part of my job is helping my team, helping them manage, helping them be focused on the most important things. Helping them find their superpower and then go, you know, orient all of their time around that. And the the debate is a great one. I want them to be having healthy debates amongst themselves and to be able to come to conclusions respectfully, but to be able to drive each other to come to the right answers. We we work a lot on that in our weekly business review process. When we first started, it was very much the me show. I came in and asked all the hard questions. Uh, and I've been working with my team on them asking each other the hard questions if they need to push each other. Why is my in stock this? Why did it take so long to ship that? So that that is self-reinforcing. So that, that is a mechanism that works on itself without me having to dive in because then I've got to go focus on something else. And the next week, I may be focused on driving the front end instead of the back end. And I need to have confidence that they're going to still drive it as hard as I would if I was in there. I was a part of a leadership team of a 900-person company back in the height of the dot-com era. And um, we did a weekly business area review, and, and it was stressful, man. We had every other business area grilling us. Is that kind of the good, stressful... It was super healthy, but is that kind of the same approach you have with yours? For sure. There should there should absolutely be some healthy tension. This is, this is one of the things that Ellie and I talked about that before I even started on the job was developing that healthy, healthy tension that you don't want people to be disrespectful, but... Partly in what metrics you give them, partly in what you incentivize, you you want them to be pushing each other and challenging each other. And that's one of the big points of this of this business review is that each business meets themselves and gets deep into their business and then brings that up to the leadership team. And there's got to be some challenge there. There's got to be some pushback to say, are you really driving yourself as hard as you could be? Well, it's like any professional sport. If you're the Atlanta Falcons, you've got like every player on the team is fighting and pushing everybody on the teams for the good of the team. They're not just out there fighting for the offensive team or fighting for the defensive team or fight, like they're really there for the, the whole team. Right. And that's kind of the leadership team you're, you're trying to build and approach. When when you came into the company, it was already established. You've been there for about a year now. You walked into an existing leadership team, an existing group of people. 
What was your first 90 days like? How do you unruffle the feathers of some that were ruffled? And can you walk us through that? I think it's a really intriguing um, lesson for a lot of our listeners. I think the biggest part was going, meeting with everybody one-on-one, really listening to them, uh, really understanding their problem. I, I asked, you know, I went down a couple levels on the team out, you know, onto the floor, out into the farm, talking to the shift leaders. And one of the things I asked them was, how do you know if you had a good day? You know, what are the metrics? What are the things that tell you whether you were successful today or not? And, you know, several of them said that it was the first time somebody had asked them that question. Uh, and so then I tried to build a structure that helped them know what does it mean to have a good day? How do you know you had a good day? How do you know you accomplished your goals for that day? So the first part was just very detailed listening across the teams uh, and then trying to build support around them before, you know, obviously I'm brought in to make changes. I'm brought in to, you know, improve things and improve efficiency. Before I did that, I wanted to make sure they knew I understand their pain points, understand where they're coming from and start to support them before, you know, asking them to change the line. And then and then when you do make changes, involve them in it, you know, lay it out for them. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to improve quality. We're trying to reduce costs. Here's how we're going to manage it. Help us in that process. Uh, and I think there's been a really great reaction, We've, you know, from from the floor, from the outbound lines had, you know, really good improvements in quality and efficiency. And it's come from that team driving it. That's cool. Did you wait a certain period of time to, um, to kind of get to know them, get to know the team? Like, did you have a couple of like, Oh shit, I really want to do this, but you forced yourself to wait 45, 60, 90 days. Did you have any kind of thought or methodology around that? For sure. For sure. I forced myself to wait without just immediately imposing. Here's my thoughts about everything which should work now. In a small business, in a growing business, in a very seasonal business, I didn't think I had 90 days to wait. Uh, so I didn't wait that long to make changes. But I, I did wait about 30 days to, to really put things in place. I also started small, started with very specific focus areas. So, you know, we wanted to improve quality, but that's very big, very nebulous. It's hard to put a total quality management program in place when you're in the middle of spring. So I just focused on the, the first one. Incorrect items was our biggest problem. So let's just focus on that. Just get the right items in the box. If that's the only thing we do, if it's the only thing we'll improve, that'll make a meaningful impact uh, to our customers. It's like an unforced error. We've got to go solve that problem ourselves internally. And they did a fantastic job. They actually drove it to number two, and now it's even the number three issue. So they've driven it down while keeping all of the other metrics down. That's huge. Do you guys have Do you guys have returns? Like customers return the tree? For sure. <laughs> For sure. We have a lot of returns. We have a... We have a live and thrive guarantee. So we guarantee the plants. We have a lot of customers call us in. Uh, you know, these are living things. We do everything we can to control it. But, you know, like I see, I see my wife marching off to like a UPS office with like a box of shoes that she returned. I can't see like somebody hauling the tree. Shoulder. I guess FedEx comes back to pick it up, right? And usually we give refunds. Usually we don't make them send back to us. Like, you know, if it's a dead tree, it's a dead tree. We'll provide a refund for that or even reship. We do a lot of reships. Uh, if there's issues, we want our customers to be happy. And if there's issue with the tree, we'll send them a, a, a new healthy one. There's got to be some funny marketing you guys can do. Years ago, a friend of mine was the CEO of Build Direct, and he made a big, when Amazon was coming out with their drones delivering packages, Jeff Booth decided to pretend that he was going to have these military hop helicopters you know, doing deliveries of, of construction materials. So he's delivering like all of the wood for your home, but it was being delivered by a military helicopter. And it was like, the drone was smashing into houses. It's really hysterical. One of the campaigns that gets a, a lot of resonance is the sort of nosy neighbors. And our number one selling tree is this privacy tree. It's a great way to build a privacy fence. 
you know, you don't have to maintain it like you do a fence. You know, you throw it out there. And so we've got this nosy neighbors campaign that people are looking at you, go plant trees. That's, you know, that's, great. that's pretty funny. Yeah, I can see a lot of fun with that. So in, in that 90 day period as well, when you were coming into the organization, how do you, you mentioned like getting to know people. Can you give us like the, like five or six things that you did in the first 30 days that really helped you get to know the team and get to know the people and, and, and kind of feel, because and how long does it take you to feel like you, you know, the business and fit in? Are you at that stage yet, even at the kind of approaching your year mark? I definitely feel like I'm at that stage yet. It probably took me mm, three or four months to really feel like I understood the business fairly well. Uh, you know, obviously that's a big part of my job is to understand the business and be able to provide insight. So I got really, really deep into it. Meeting with people, you know, incredibly important. Meeting one-on-one with, you know, multiple layers down into the team, talk to them, learn about what they do day to day, you know, huge amount of walks going out into the field, going out and observing what's happening, walking with them and saying, tell me about your operation and explain this to me. And, and, you know, back to like, how do you know you had a good day? What are your problems? What are your pain points? How can I help you? And people will give you a great list. You get a huge list of here's a whole bunch of problems that need to go solve from that. Um, and then obviously I'm a data-driven person. So I also immediately launched, uh, you know, going to get the data I had. Here's my list of metrics I want to see. Some of them we weren't even capturing. There, there were plenty, you know, things in our labor where we weren't, we were just capturing total hours. We didn't know where they were assigned. So I couldn't tell how the nursery was doing versus the fulfillment center. There's a lot of work just to capture the right data and then distill it into metrics that told me what's our quality, What's our efficiency? What are our costs? How well are we doing? Uh, and ultimately trying to tie that back to the customer experience, right? Look at those reships, returns, refunds, count every single one of those as a defect and back that through. How do we figure out how to reduce that? So got really deep into the data. Like I said, built some of the reporting myself just to start to break the ice of, hey, here's what we can do. Here's how we can look at things. And then you know, really started that weekly business review process You know, before I had all the answers, before I had all the data started to bring everybody together and say, here's how I think about the business. Here's how I think about breaking it down. Let's walk through each area and learn in detail together about each area of the business and, and what we should be looking at here. I think that the, in the, you know, the era that, that you and I grew up in business in, we, we went to an office when it was our first day, our first week, our first month, and our onboarding was in an office and people were around. And how do you onboard executives and managers today when many of them are remote? How What's an onboarding process or system look like to really get them up and integrated and not feeling lost after you know day two? That is a fantastic question. I'm going to start with admitting I don't know what the right answer to this is. I think we're all learning in a virtual environment. We are technically all remote, um, although we do spend a reasonable amount of time in the office. My first answer is you go to the office. We, we have our main fulfillment center and farm and Fort Mill, South Carolina. So that's where you go in your first week. I went there my first week. You get to see the operation. Often before we even start people, we bring them in there to show them. If you go and see that and it excites you, this is going to be a good place to be. If it scares you because of how complicated and hairy is, it's probably not a good fit. So we bring people in early. We show them the operation. We let them see how it works. You know, Let them see these millions of trees and see them going out the door. And then at least your first week is spent there you know, physically in the office, meeting with people, meeting with teams, having that you know, direct contact. And then... Beyond that, it's the virtual version of that, right? It's meet across all the teams, uh, meet cross-functionally with all of your partners and you know, start to get to understand them. 
Yeah, I think a lot of it's going to also come down to just sitting with the new reports and asking them, like, what are you missing? What else would you like to know? And trying to piece that together. Because you're right, I don't think we have that figured out yet. There's going to be some interesting systems developed. You know, I'm sure they're being developed and, and are, but I think that's going to be a really critical part for us as companies is understanding how do we onboard and socialize and get people to feel a part of a team because, boy, they can get lost in the shuffle after two days, right? Like, Sure, for sure. Again, I'm going to fall back and we're a small company. It's still relatively easy to keep track of each individual person as you're onboarding, especially in, in corporate. Uh, it's a little bit harder to get lost in the shuffle virtually, but but for sure, that's a big problem, especially as the business scales. If you bring somebody in and assign them something and you don't physically see them for weeks at a time, you know how are you sure they're working on the right things? You've mentioned metrics and, and dashboards um, a couple of times, and I'm curious what your approach is to you know, there's there's a thousand metrics and KPIs and numbers that your business can look at. How do you distill down which ones are the ones the leadership team should look at? How often do you look at them? You know, does your dashboard uh, represent the numbers like a car dashboard where the speed is a really big one and other ones are tiny and small and they light up red? Like, what are your thoughts and and kind of working with data like that? Sure, sure. Right. So first of all, I think of you know, everything in terms of customer experience, you start with what is the impact of the customer? What is our customer experience? As a business, we exist to serve our customers. So if you don't start with that measurement, you know, you're in trouble. On the flip side is cost. Everything we do has a cost to it. And those are often really balanced metrics. I want to have the best customer service possible, but I want to have a reasonable and rational and defensible cost. So in each major area of the business, I want to start there. How am I helping my customers? How am I supporting them? What is the cost? And then in a lot of areas of business, the value. What value do I generate here? It's really easy at the top line to say sales. I have sales and margin. But as you go through the business like nursery, what value does the nursery bring? How are they taking small trees and building them into big trees? And what are the dollars of that? And if I've got dollars and I've got cost, I can know if it's working. If the dollars, the value coming out is more than the cost, it's successful. If it's not more than the cost, I'm spending too much money to turn these small trees into big trees. So it's really breaking it down on those axes customer experience, cost, and value. And then start at the highest level. And then for each department, for each leader, for each person, you can assign one of these two. You assign their version of those in as high level and as dollar-centric as you can get. And essentially, then I ask them, okay, I'm going to hold you accountable for these metrics. What are the set of metrics you need to feel confident every week coming in and defending where you are on that? And then kind of helping build out bridges. How do you bridge it? Or how do you root cause this so you understand when there's a defect, where there's a defect. So very much to your point, a metric by itself is useless. If I tell you how many units per hour, is that good? Is that bad? How, how would you know? So every single one of these metrics has to have a target. And that's really the hard part, right? Is setting the targets. They have to be achievable, but a stretch. If they're unachievable, everybody just gives up. They can't possibly hit it, so they give up. If they're too easy, everybody hits them and they don't have to try very hard. So you've got this tension of they need to be just hard enough that the team can stretch to hit them. And, and that can be difficult to figure that out, especially in a very seasonal business. So our need to change throughout the season to say, here's how efficient you should be in pre-spring and the heat of spring. Here's what it should be when you're coming out of spring. Here's where you should be. And then that's you know where all of your bridges are built off of. And to your point of red and green, that's what the leadership team is looking at every week. Here's our high-level metrics broken out very high level by area, cost, quality, value. Are we hitting where we should be? And when we're not, drill into that. Why are we not hitting? What do we need to fix right now today? I think one of the things we're really working on with the team is the daily version of that, kind of calling it the daily store walk. If you manage a store, you manage a Home Depot store, you for sure are walking that every day. Let me look at the shelves. Let me see if there's something wrong. Let me see if there's something I can do. In a virtual world, we have to build a virtual version of that. 
how do I look today and say, are things going as I expect today? And when they're not, what is the set of activities I should do? That should then roll into our weekly business review. That should then roll into our monthly reviews. Each of these sets of, of actions should roll together. If your metrics are well-designed, they work that way. There's some tension between cost and customer service. So you've always got a balance. There's you know roll-up of activity. If they work poorly, people chase the wrong things. Um, and so it's really important to think through what's the tension. If you give somebody a cost metric with no customer service metric, they'll burn the world down trying to reduce costs and they'll hurt your customer experience. Well, I like that you pointed out, like, what does it all mean as well? We had one point during our seven-minute all-company daily huddle at 1-800-GOT-JUNK that after we read out our daily metrics, we wrapped and the whole company said, what does it all mean? And then we kind of explained what those metrics from that day actually meant because you're right. Like people, people don't know. They don't remember. Like even with our car, like we see these things on our dashboard and they light up we're like, what the fuck does that mean? It's like, I don't know. Well then shit. Like why didn't they teach us that in driver's ed class? Right. Like I have an orange light on my car. It means take it into the shop. Right. Or fill up with gas. <laughs> Definitely. I think that's one of the biggest things we as leaders provide is that what does this mean when we're missing? What does that mean? Why is that really important? You know, why is in-stock really important for a customer? Because customer experience starts with in-stock. Why is cost really important? Because we're managing a business and we don't have an infinite checkbook. So we have to manage our costs on things. I have so many things I'd like to dive in with you on this and, and we don't have time. And I want to I ask you about your growth as a leader um, because you've clearly got the chops. Um, what have you worked on over, your, over the years to get stronger and stronger as a, an executive, as a COO? It, it's really changed, you know, over time as I've scaled, as I've scaled in my career, what I need to focus on has changed. Well, part two is what are you working on now? So the biggest thing is probably constant self-reflection. Like, am I adding value? You know, if you're an individual contributor, what am I doing to add value in my role here? And if I'm not, how can I change that? And, and early on, it's often technical things, right? That's what people are focused on. How can I get better at the the type of business I'm in and more understand the business. And then as you grow and you start to manage people, early on, you realize, oh, shoot, I don't actually do things. My team does things. And so my skill is no longer necessarily me knowing this. It's me knowing how to manage a team to do this. And so it switches. And you know, the, the bigger up, first you're managing people, and then you're managing a team, and then you're managing a strategy, and then you're managing a vision. And so what you need to learn and, and the skills you need change as you go up that. It's adapt or die, right? It is. It is. And, you know, e even in each role, even in my role, you know, as, as I think you pointed out, the CEO role can be very different and it changes over time. I need to constantly evaluate, am I adding the most value to the company? Should I be focused on this or should I, you know, pivot and focus on something else that can contribute more value? That is one of the most frustrating and strange things about the COO role. Harvard wrote an article years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And then in my book, The Second in Command, that just came out a few months ago, I talk about how you, as an example, a very strong second in command, very strong COO, would be horribly useless for 90% of the other companies out there to be their CEO because you wouldn't match with the CEO. You wouldn't have the right skill set to be the wrong industry. You wouldn't be passionate about it. Same with me. I was amazing at 1-800-GOT-JUNK for the 2 million to 106 million, but I would have been horrible from the 100 to 450 where they're at now. And the current guy who I've known for 30 years has been amazing from 100 to 450 would have been useless in the startup days. It's, so it's, it's a really critically hard role to hire for and to grow with. You've clearly done well. I want you to give yourself some advice as a 21-year-old, 22-year-old. If you were to, to lean back and give Matthew some advice, what would you tell yourself back then? My, my biggest thing would be the sort of don't sweat the small stuff. Uh, I didn't be very worried and paranoid about everything. 
And while that can be helpful sometimes in business, it's it's perhaps not great personally. If you know if you add value, if you're constantly improving yourself, if you're constantly you know figuring it out how to continue to grow and fit in. Your career will take care of yourself, and and worrying about every individual thing just is not helpful. So okay, so I got to ask then this, and I love that point by the way, but I got to ask a funny kind of sidebar on that. You've done an annual trip for 20 years with your buddies. That you've done a great hiking trip for 20 years. Do you go through your pack at the end of the trip and go, I'm still haven't been using this shit. Like I'm going to throw it out for the next trip. For sure. For sure. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I have an Excel spreadsheet of what do I carry on the next trip? I review each time I've taken notes on what I'm going to change next trip. You know, things come out, things go on as we've gotten older, we've gotten ultralight. So we've got to carry. Very I just did that with mine. I'm like, why am I carrying this? I just, I don't need this thing. Like, I know it seemed like a good idea two years ago, but I, anyway, whatever. Matthew Graham, the COO for Fast Growing Trees. Thanks so much for the sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate your time and, and insights today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It was great. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.